0: Go ahead and take your uh, seats and uh, be uh, reaching for your Bible. And I want to start actually by um, reading the same passage we read last week. We are in um, a second message that goes along with last week's. It's part of a seven-week series that we're in called We Are Harvest. Uh, but we, um, these two messages are like two sides. We said this last week, two sides of the same coin. And so the passage is Matthew 22, It'd be helpful if I told you that, so you could be turning there. Uh, Matthew 22, and going to read 34 to 40 um, once again. Matthew 22: 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that's Jesus, when he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he asks, what's the first and great commandment? Jesus gives him the answer, and then Jesus just throws in the bonus answer, Hey, let me tell you about the second one as well, and he does this because this gets to the heart of where the Pharisee's life is really at. And of all the things that you're asked to be and do as a Christian, this one may be the hardest. Love people. Correct. Yeah, you should be giggling right now. I expected that there would be. This is the hardest. Love people. It's the hardest for like really obvious reasons, isn't it? Because people are very hard to love. And maybe you're afraid to re- react right now because you know that you're hard to love a little bit. Does that sound right? Is, did someone say no? <laughs> this message is especially for you this morning. As we're going to see here, and and as Jesus just said it, this is the second highest priority for a Christian next to loving God himself. And yet even loving God himself, we made this point in last week's message, even loving God is mostly expressed in how we love people. That's what the New Testament teaches us. John wrote, and and this is just to punch the point of, of how serious this is for us, that we would love people. The the Apostle John, who, who, who doesn't sidestep anything in his letter, in his first letter. In fact, we could say, based on the two verses I'm going to share right now out of 1 John, that this is the most harsh book in the entire Bible. John wrote this, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love, by that he means people, anyone who does not love people does not know God Because God is love. Do you agree that that sounds a bit harsh? Like essentially he's saying, if you don't love people, you're not even saved. There's no escaping the weightiness of this. John goes on to say, as if that verse wasn't heavy enough, here's what he says. 1 John 4, 20. This one's on the screen. If anyone says, I love God and hates, that is to say, does not love, hates his brother, He's a liar. I don't know if the word liar stings you the way it stings me, but we weren't even allowed to say it in our house. I mean, my, my grandfather hated this word and all that it represented. And there it is in Scripture. And we're being told at this point, if you say you love God and you don't love others, you're a liar For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you don't love people, you have no claim to be saved. I told you, 1 John is harsh. But the stakes in this message are so high. It's our very faith in Christ is in question. And so this phrase, we love people, is a a life and death proposition for us as Christians, and therefore, in the context of this series, this is a life and death proposition for us as a church. Because if we don't love people, once again, shut the doors, move on, let's all get on with our lives. We are harvest, we're saying in this series. We are harvest, and we had better make sure we love people. Amen? We had better make sure we love people. And so let's look at this. We love people, first of all, as we'd like them to love us. That makes sense. Uh, The second commandment, again, verse 39 of what we just read, you shall love your neighbors, notice the two words, as yourself. That is to say, in the way that you already love yourself. Okay? Okay? Uh, this is an assumption that Jesus is making again because of, always ask the question, who's Jesus talking to? What's the context? What, what, what is the original audience hearing when he says the things that he says? Now remember, so when he's answering this question, he's talking to a Pharisee and the Pharisees, mm, they took care of themselves. They were very concerned with their own well-being. And so by taking care of your needs and prioritizing your well-being, Jesus is saying, in the way that you do that, let that be the standard for how you care for others. In fact, by way of illustration, Paul makes this very point in Ephesians chapter five, just jot down Ephesians 5.29 in your notes. And he says this in the context of, he's talking about marriage. He talks to wives and then he talks to husbands in that letter. And he says this, a husband should love his wife as he loves his own flesh. And then he says, because no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Like the dude's going to take care of himself. He's going to make sure he's well-fed. We know how men get when they're hungry. Okay. He's going to be well-fed. He's going to be well-rested. He's going to pursue his leisure things. He's going he's to do the things that bring him joy and satisfaction in life. Paul's saying, the way you do that, men, you better be loving your wives in the same way. We naturally take care of ourselves. In another context, Jesus, again, speaking like a variation on the same commandment, says this in Luke 6, 31. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. And many know that as the, that's the golden rule. You can find the golden rule all over Google. Maybe you were raised knowing the Google, Google the, the Google rule. No. <laughs> Amen. Let's close in prayer. All right. <laughs> the golden, the golden rule, if you Google it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. A lot of people don't realize that's just rooted in the scriptures. That just comes out of the gospel. Those are the words of Jesus. And so when we hear that golden rule, the dual standard of love for people is we take care of ourselves, love people the way we take care of ourselves, and love people the way we would want them to treat us. Understand that? That's how we're to love others. Now, one of the very interesting notes about the great commandment is how it reflects, at least the first two commandments, the, first, the great commandment and the second one that Jesus gives us here, how these reflect the 10 commandments out of the Old Testament, Love God, you can look at this later uh, in in Exodus 20, but love God reflects the first four of the 10 commandments and love people reflects the last six of the 10 commandments. And Paul knows that, he's got that in mind because he was kind of taught that and he's got that in mind when he's writing to the Romans and he says this in Romans 13. Owe no one anything. Now remember, he's writing to Christians in a church, church in Rome. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And that's exactly what Jesus said here. If if you're loving other people, that is a reflection of love for God. You get it. For the commandments, and he's talking about the 10, but now he's talking about the latter six that relate to loving people because he's talking to a church where there's people. And he, he just takes four of them and he gives them as an example here You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then he just throws it in, in any other commandment. They're all summed up in this. And he quotes Jesus in the second commandment. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Then he adds this, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, practically speaking then, Paul's examples, we go through these. We love people, to use his examples, we love people, we love others when we live out a biblical sexual ethic. Don't commit adultery. We love others when we stay within the guardrails of what the scriptures say is acceptable sexually. We hate people, we despise them when we step out of those boundaries. His second example is, is not hating or murdering. He says murdering there, but we remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said, you know, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you even hate somebody, you're basically guilty of murder. And we're like, oh, this Christian life is ridiculous. But that's the radical cost of discipleship in the New Testament. That's what God is calling us to. You, if you hate somebody, it's like you just stuck a knife in them and are watching them bleed out. That's what Jesus told us. And so I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be hating anyone or I'm guilty of murder here. I, I need to be loving people. Paul's example, not stealing. I don't want anybody to steal from me, so I'm not going to steal from them. That's love, not coveting. I don't, I don't want to feel badly about the things that I have because other people are coveting that. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to covet their thing. It's not loving to covet what someone else has. I'm going to love people as we would have them love us. You feel like that's a good start to this? Because I got four more of these. You ready? Ready for a second one? Not sure. I understand your hesitation. It's only going to get harder. Love people, secondly, even when, well even when it's hard to love them. So before we get into this point, I, I want us to understand the word. Love, because a lot has been made about uh, the original language words around the, the English translation of love. In, in, in essence, in English, we have one word, it's love. And in, in Greek, there are two primary words. There's a third one that doesn't appear in the New Testament, eros. It's obvious what that is. But the other two words appear uh, pretty prominently in the New Testament. And preachers over the years have made a big deal of the, the distinction between these two Greek words for love. The main uh, New Testament Greek words translated into English as love um, are agape. You've heard this before, no doubt, if you've been around the church at all, agape, and the other one is phileo. And all I'll say is this, um, word study, or are doing um, etymologies, understanding the origins of words, that's super important, but context, where the word is used in the passage and how it's used is still of primary importance. So we look at the history of the word, but how's it being used here? And we know this because uh, we have to do this because we know that word meanings change. Isn't that true? Word meanings change. Like I'm so afraid at times to use certain words because I know that uh, teenage TikTokers are changing the meanings of words all the time. And I may be standing up here, such a dangerous business, because I can be up here using a word, and, and when, I, when I go have lunch with my own kids this afternoon, they're going to tell me which words I'm not allowed to use anymore. Because they're aware of what the teenage TikTokers are doing with the vocabulary. Words change meanings. That's the only point I want to really make here. So let's look at these two words. First of all, love. That's the English word. Agape is the Greek word. It's affection based on deep appreciation and high Regard. And so um, in that definition, you see that there's there has to be intentionality because I'm actually thinking about the person. And it's not that they're it's not that they're necessarily worthy of that. We we might use that word. It's someone I consider worthy of my attention, of my affection, but it's not because they earned it, it's just because you've looked at them and said, you know what, I think I want to love them. There's intentionality behind it. I appreciate them or I regard them as someone who is in need of this love. Um, Whereas phileo is an affection based on association. And so more naturally, this is about family and friendships. Like I have phileo love for my wife. I have phileo love for my children and for my friends. And that's it's usually very mutual. It's based on relationship or association. Now both sets and Those definitions come from a lexicon um, uh, by Lau and Nida, and they sum it up this way. Both sets of terms are used for the total range of loving relations between people, between people and God, and between God and Jesus Christ. And so sometimes what's happening in a passage, it's, it's not that, well, this word definitely just means this, and this word just definitely means this. It's that sometimes in a paragraph, you'll see both words, and it's just that the author is mixing up the words for variety's sake. Both of them very definitely mean love. And so uh, we have these two words. Having said all of that, because I know some of you are so interested in all of that kind of thing, every passage we're looking at today, several of them, all of them refer to agape love. Affection based on deep appreciation and high regard with this intentionality uh, built into it. Love of this sort is the only kind of love that's commanded by God. He never commands phileo love because it's based on association and relationship. It's, it's a love that is initiated, initiated willfully on our part as a result of God's injunctions and God's example to us. Now, I've defined the word here because at this point, it's so important that we understand that intentionality is going to be needed to love certain people. That makes sense? We have to love people even when it's hard uh, to love them. And here's Jesus. Here's what he says. This is Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your, what is the word? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Now, notwithstanding the fact that sometimes, even in our natural phileo-type relationships, our family and friendships, and even in church, once in a while, we will have dust-ups in our family. Is that true, in your family? This morning, anyone on the way here had a little dust-up with your family? Occasionally, we have dust-ups with our friends. I've heard in some churches, church people don't get along with each other. I've heard that. I've heard it. So occasionally, notwithstanding the fact that we occasionally have dust-ups in our families and churches and friendships, generally, generally, it is far easier to love people that we like and to love people with whom we have much in common. True? And it's far harder to love anyone else. And Jesus' words here about people we hate and enemies, these are really, this is really provocative. The Pharisee that he was answering here would have had, the Pharisees classically are described as those that would have had hate for a great many people. And they had a great many enemies. Essentially, Pharisees could be seen to hate or have enemies of anyone else who was not a Pharisee was not like them. Anyone who didn't follow their particular, view, their particular view of the world. And that afflicts, that afflicts so many today in the church that essentially we're making enemies of anybody who doesn't have our worldview. And the thing is, a Christian can't do that. We're absolutely forbidden by Jesus we're forbidden to hate or have enemies of anyone the story of the good samaritan think about this one this is such a great example of this and we don't have time to unpack the whole story there but it's in Luke chapter 10 it's an illustration of Jesus point a hated enemy of the pharisees this samaritan is hated simply because of his ethnicity the history that Jews and Samaritans had together. Yet this Samaritan shows up the Pharisee and the priest by demonstrating genuine love for what should have been his enemy. A Jew beaten by the side of the road. Someone he should have hated, not someone he should have helped. Now listen, I get that this is a very high and difficult calling in fact, when Paul's explaining what it means to his letter, uh, in his letter to the Ephesians chapter four, he's explaining to the Ephesians what it means to walk worthy of the Lord, worthy of the, of the calling to which we've been called. And among the things that he lists there in Ephesians 4.2 is that we would bear, this is the phrase, that we would be bearing with one another in love. Again, he's talking to a church. That we would be bearing with one another in love. And the word bearing Again, because pastors love word studies. The word bearing means to tolerate or to put up with. And so when you love this way, there's this built-in sense that the object of your love is hard to love. We have to bear with one another. We have to put up with some things. We have to tolerate some things in order to love in this way. We We have to be bearing with one another in love. And again, Paul's talking about fellow Christians in his letter, not enemies. How much harder is it to do that with people we hate, people who, who would be considered our enemies? We have a perfect picture, of course, of what this looks like in the example of God's love for us. We are, in our unregenerate state before salvation, we are a sinful, wretched. Rebels who are hostile to God. Paul describes us in in Romans 5.10, he describes us as the enemies of God. You can think about the nicest unsaved person you know right now, the nicest, most moral unsaved person you know right now, and they are an enemy of God. Just as all of us who are now saved, who are now friends with God, but we were once enemies of God prior to our salvation. And yet, 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We were his enemies. We hated him. We were opposed to his kingdom, and he gave his life for us. We were the ones who were hard to love, and he bore with us so as a church then we are to love all we have no enemies but one the evil one himself is our only enemy so the so the the the, the far the far left liberal activist not our enemy The far-right extremist, not our enemy. The LGBTQ community, not our enemy. Atheists who oppose everything we believe and do, not our enemies. Not one of these are our enemies, but even if they were, even if they were our enemies, they should still be the objects of our love. They may be hard to love, but that's exactly the point, isn't it? From God's perspective, we're all hard to love. The far left liberal's hard to love. Love them anyway. The far right extremist is hard to love. Love them anyway. Those in the LGBTQ community might be hard to love. Love them anyway. Atheists, super hard to love. Because they're so vocal about how much they hate our God. How much he doesn't exist. Or how much we believe in fairy tales. Love them anyway. And let me add this one. Because I think this might really make the point for us right now. But the government is not our enemy. The government is not our enemy. Even a government that you vehemently disagree with, not our enemy. You think about the Apostle Paul, and he had several as he was carrying out his gospel mission in the world, preaching the gospel and planting churches. Paul had several run-ins with government officials as a result of that activity. Never once do we see him disrespecting government. Never once do we see him resisting arrest. Paul was always very respectful. And remember, this was the Roman Empire. He never opposed the law. He appealed within the law on at least three occasions. But he never opposed it. He never protested. And again, that was was Rome. And I want to say that too many Christians right now are engaging in political fights. And they're doing so on the basis of errant theology, a misunderstanding of what the Bible has given to us in terms of a mission in this world. and which also does not communicate love your neighbor, does it? It's actually something that communicates something quite opposite to love your neighbor. So love, even when it's hard to love them, If you're not completely ticked off with me right now in the scriptures, number three, we love people. Not only with words, but practically. Now, to say that as Christians, we, we love everyone, to say that we love everyone, we love everyone, we're Christians, we love everyone, but then fail to actually practice it, to apply it, is what what would we call we would call that lip service. The little phrase, lip service, actually goes back to the 1640s, essentially still means the very same thing. 500 years of a word meaning exactly the same thing. Something proffered, there's a word we use every day, something proffered but not performed. It is insincere profession of goodwill. I love that line. That's from Etymology uh, Dictionary Online. It is a profession, a profession, an insincere profession of good will. And this is exactly what John's talking about because believers no less than unbelievers can practice lip service. First John three eighteen, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It would be better, in other words, if you, if you just did things rather than saying you were going to do things. Just do things, just love people. And James spoke similarly to his readers, James 2, 15 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now go in peace. Hope you're warmed and filled. Church lady. Without giving them the things that they actually needed for the body, He asked the question, then what good is that? And again, I think as you read James here, you you just go like, I'm thinking Good Samaritan again. It's kind of what comes to mind. And I picture that Pharisee and that priest walking by, seeing this fellow Jew laying on the ground, beaten, walking by, going, God bless your brother, be warmed and filled. Hope Hope you're feeling better soon. Gotta be on my way thinking that the putting the blessing of God on him without doing anything, expressing love, but not doing anything, is sufficient. And of course it is not. This is important, and in, in, as a church, I mean, we engage in a number of compassion par- partnerships that we, we hope are hitting the mark to show people in really practical ways that we love them, but always as individuals, we need to understand as individual Christians, I'm talking about a, a series on the church here, so I'm going to talk about what the church is doing, but this is only effective insofar as every individual Christian is saying, like, I'm owning that and I'm doing it too. I'm not just living my life vicariously through everyone else who's caring for people in a compassionate way, but I'm actually doing it myself. So our partnerships... Um, Here at the church, and there's a link in your notes to our our webpage that has these partnerships, Envisage Pregnancy Services and Barry Food Bank and Salvation Army Bayside Mission, uh, Children of Promise Ministries in Nigeria, members of our church um, um, founded that and operate that, Prison Fellowship Canada. So we sit, you know, one of the ways that we very practically show that we care and that we love, that it's not just lip service, is we send funds we regularly pray for all of our partners and the work that they're doing uh, in our city and beyond. And we promote the need for volunteers. And many of you, I know, many, many of you are giving of your time to sort groceries or to deliver groceries. Now, since the pandemic, that's become a, a big one for our neighbor at the at the food bank. These are really important. Many of you are giving counsel, you're caring for. Many of you have given have taken training uh, to go into situations to do post-prison work with those who are being released from incarceration. Difficult work, hard to love sometimes. But I love how so many of you are engaged in these practical expressions of love. And I would also put down not only the compassion partners, but I would put this down also in the realm of loving others is our efforts to plant churches. These are, this also is a practical expression of love. And what we've done with Um, Harvest Bible Fellowship in the past and what we're doing now with Acts 29 and proclaiming the gospel and planting churches is inherently loving because it's giving people hope who had no hope. It's helping people find the forgiveness of of their sins and then finding joy in being part of the people of God. And so love has to be practical, hands-on, direct engagement, not merely lip service, and each of us, again, evaluating very personally, am I just saying I love people, or in what way am I actually demonstrating that I love people? A couple more to go. Here's the here's fourth one. We also love people in ways that cost us something. Now, it can hardly be love if we don't feel the cost of it. Uh, consider the great cost that our God paid to bring about our own uh, salvation. You have to always make sure our um, eyes, eyes are set on what Christ did, the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. First Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered. Remember that he suffered to demonstrate his love toward us. The righteous, Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You know, Speaking of Jesus now being put to death in the flesh. Think about what Jesus did for us. It cost Jesus something. We see that actually when he, when he prayed in the garden, you, you see the beginning of the agony as he begins to pray in advance of his crucifixion. The weight of our sin in the garden was, was being placed upon him. And he prayed some very human things. Matthew 26 records that he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I'm not sure in my flesh I want to do this. These people are so hard to love. Is this the only way that I can demonstrate my love? Alas, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus prayed. If this is the way I'm going to show love to them, then let's do this. And then on the cross as he's suffering, that moment just before he passes when he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, Father, have you abandoned me? I know we don't fully understand the Trinity. There's no possible way we could understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what we know in that moment is the Father turned away from the Son. He loved us that much. the father couldn't look at the sin that the son was bearing and in some matter, in some manner it it tore apart for that moment that God had. That's what it cost him to love you and me and' it's, it's going to cost us if we truly love people. Jesus said in, in John 15, 12 to 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, and this is, this is just prior to him being crucified, arrested and crucified. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's setting them up. He's telling them, the standard by which you're going to love is the standard by which I love you. And by the way, I'm about to die for you. Now there are a number of contexts in which we love and and the cost isn't that high. Where, where I would just put it this way, love is discounted. People that we can love where the the cost of love is discounted, or where there's there's a return on our investment. We love and receive back in a good marriage. I'll just tell you, Cheryl and I have been married for 32 years. It's not hard to love Cheryl. It's never been hard to love Cheryl because I get so much back from it. And she's incredible at loving me. It has never been difficult to love my children. Um, There are one or two times for each of them. Do you know what I'm saying? Love your kids, you get so much back. And if that's true for your kids, that's like tenfold with grandkids, because you don't have to do any of the hard stuff. Just love your grandkids, they love you. Flip them a 20, buy them some toys. Get down on the carpet and play with them. Give them a snack Mom and dad say they can't have. You're in. You're gold. Love them. They love you back. It's not hard. It's not hard and really good friendships. I love, I get love back from my friends. It's not difficult in those really good in Christ relationships that we have as Christians. I have so many friends that love me unconditionally and I love them and I, in my loving of them, I get so much back from it. It's reciprocal, it's requited love. It's answered, it's returned. And in that respect, it doesn't cost us as much because there's that ROI. There's a return on the investment. But what about unrequited love? What about love that costs us where there's no return? Where the person won't love us back or can't love us back? There's innumerable opportunities for us to love without any expectation of return. And we should never expect a return. Otherwise, it's something other than love. Jesus, for example, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They spat on him. They mocked him. They shredded his skin with whips, forced him to carry the cross. They drove nails through his hands and his feet. And they continued to taunt him while he hung there for six hours. Father, forgive them. And show them any love. Even those who had spent time with him, save for John. Who wouldn't even go to the cross to be there with him? His blood spilling out in love for them, and they didn't even want to see it. So, love has to be costly, sacrificial. Jesus is the ultimate example of that sacrifice. Paul said, speaking of of Jesus and, and compelling us to live similarly, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2. Later in the passage, he says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And really, that's the definition of love, isn't it? That, too, is a reflection of the second commandment. Count others more significant than yourselves. How are how are you going to do that? How are we as a church going to do that? You know, a couple of things come to mind, very specific things. A couple of things come to mind for me. The first is this, a conversation that Jeannie, our children's ministry director, had with um, our new day camp coordinator, Liz, uh, just this past week about, you know, getting more kids from our neighborhood to camp this summer. And we've already always run this big day camp and we... It fills up with church kids. Like for the most part, it fills up with church kids. You all want to have your kids there. It's an incredible week of camp. Hundreds and hundreds of kids here. And now the pandemic kind of gave us a pause. We had a year off there. Last year, we did a scaled back thing. But now we're thinking really, we want to do two weeks of camp. That's going to be costly. Where are all the volunteers going to come from to staff? Two weeks of camp. Do you love kids or not? And we need to staff two weeks of care. But we want to reach out to the neighborhood and we think of ourselves as being in this commercial industrial area. There's apartments right across the street like a hundred meters away from here. There's neighborhoods around here that are lower income neighborhoods. There's some tough schools within our immediate area here. We want to reach out to that community. We want to invite kids to come to camp. But here's the thing, okay? It costs money to run a camp. They're not going to have the money to pay the fees. We're going to have to pay that. We need you to pay that. Some of these kids, they don't know how to behave in church. Your kids, they come to Harvest Kids. They come to Awana. They know, they know the warp and woof of this thing. They know how to, how to act in the building. They know how to sit in a classroom, how to listen to a lesson, how to do a craft. They know all these things. These kids. There's a cost to be paid in terms of just emotional energy to bring in people, kids that are not church kids. Kids are going to come and they wouldn't have had breakfast. We're going to have to feed them. Haven't had to feed any camp kids when they first got here in the morning. But do you want to pay that cost? Do you want to love the kids that live in the apartment building and in the neighborhoods around here that go to Portageview School in Hillcrest? Do you want to love them? If you do, it's not enough to say, yes, we're going to love them. That's lip service. It's going to cost us if we want to do it. And I've already mentioned church planting. It's, It's easier for a church to simply focus on its own thing. Look how wonderful this church is. We have a wonderful building and a nice place. Just run some programs, have some people come. Have a nice staff that interacts with the people. Just nice, comfortable, fun little church to be a part of. That's not at all the calling. And So like we could take our, our, our revenues, the offerings that come in, we could take that and just continue to build this thing. Just continue to have a really nice place. Continue to add staff. Continue to do things to the building. Continue to have nice programs. Or you can take a chunk of that money every year and say, you know what? We need to start another one of these somewhere else that doesn't have this. Well, that's going to cost you in terms... It's going to cost finances, money that you could spend on yourself. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you people and energy. Some of you may get called to go to a new church. and That's going to be costly But new churches, every study shows that new churches are the very best way to proclaim the gospel to people and to see them come to faith in Jesus. So we ought to be doing it, don't you think? Because it's the loving thing to do. See, are we willing to sacrifice some things that we'd like to do here in order to show some people in another town, another neighborhood, another country that we love them and we want them to hear the gospel? And finally, this, we love people because Jesus said so. Now, on the one hand, because I said so reflects very poor parenting, right? Never say this to your kids, because I said so. But I feel like if it's Jesus saying it, it's it's probably okay. Because Jesus is the perfect parent, the Father is the perfect parent, and everything he commands Uh, for us is for our good. And so he said, uh, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And the, the thing about us as parents saying, because I said so, is that often we're not actually setting a good example for them in that thing. And so we're invoking the authority card to make them, compel them to do the thing that we're not setting a good example in. Because I said so? Whereas Jesus, we saw, provides a perfect example of how to love people, something he experienced not only as the Son of God, but that he experienced as a full human being. He knows what it is to love at ground level with fellow human beings who make it so hard. And so when he commands it in us, he's doing it from experience, and sometimes when it's especially hard to love, when we simply don't feel like it or want to, then what we fall back on is the command. Okay, like I know I don't feel like it. I don't like this person at all. They're being very mean to me. I'd rather do anything but love this person right now, and then I remember, but Jesus said, I gotta do it. So if you don't have it inside of you to love someone, just remember, it's a command. Jesus said, do it. So I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to get my heart aligned with Jesus' heart as best I can. You know, when, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because because they were harassed, because they were helpless. They were like a sheep without a shepherd. That's the compassion part. And sometimes we feel that, and sometimes we don't, and we don't want to love somebody. And for those moments, we have the command. Let's strive to have his heart of compassion. But if not, we have his command. All right, that's all I had to say. It's not much, right? Pretty light little devotional here this morning. Comes back to this, 1 John 4.8. Let me just edit it a little bit. Any church that does not love people does not know God. Any church that does not love people does not know God because God is love desire desired aspiration is to love people. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't, but we're striving to live out the second commandment as best we can. And to the extent that you and I, as individual believers, love people, then I believe that that's going to be true of our church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you um, have demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I would just so want all of us to be meditating so deeply this week on that truth, that understanding of how much you love us. And so God, um, convict us by your Holy Spirit, convince us of the things that we've heard here today. Change us, Father, in those parts of our lives that need to be changed in, in attitudes and actions and beliefs. Father, whatever needs to be aligned with you, Father, align it. And God, give us very real opportunities this week to love others, to love people as you have loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.